A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by our very own supervising producer and podcast host of the We Really Like Her podcast, Emily Gagne, and actor, Philip Tanzini. There's something magical about the very format of the soap opera. The open-ended narrative and wildly unpredictable plot lines mean anything could happen, and probably will. You need to do something wild to keep viewers tuning into their favorite shows for decades. Now, David Lynch, of all people, who has stated Twin Peaks is a soap opera and not just a parody of one, expresses his reason for loving the format thusly. Soap operas grow out of life, and because they're continuing stories, you get to go deeper into the characters' lives. It just triggers more and more and more, and happy accidents come. The soap opera has taken a downturn in recent years, with long-running shows like As the World Turns ending after 54 years. But the lead-up to 1991 was a golden age of the soaps, the stories, etc. Enough for not one, but two movies to come out parodying the genre in that year. Now, we've got Philip Tanzini with us today, who you were there front and center for quite possibly one of the biggest soap opera events of all time, which was the wedding of Luke and Laura. What was it like being on a soap Soap opera in like the golden age. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, second of all, I don't really know if we, I mean, we knew that there was some lightning in the bottle. To give you a little quick backstory, Gloria Monti was the person who was the producer that the president of ABC brought in to save General Hospital. So to answer your question, once we knew it was well underway and something major was happening, it was a real party. <laughs> um, that's really the best way to describe it. You had 40, 50, 60 actors on the show at that time, perhaps. And these were the good times. And I was the youngest person on the show, but there had been many people who had been kicking around Hollywood for a long time. And to be perfectly honest, most people who end up on soaps, especially when they're older, this is the last train to Clarksville. This is it. And so, especially for those people, it was really great to be in that environment, that atmosphere. It, there was a general great feeling that we were a part of something that was the zeitgeist. Nobody expected this to happen. So it was such a fun, pleasant experience for everybody. And it, and it bled onto the set with the crew all the people behind the scenes. It was a really fantastic, fun, fun time. I don't think people now quite, especially because like I said, we're kind of seeing the death of the soap opera in the format it is known for as long as it has. Obviously, it's bleeding into other things. It's a format right. that will always exist. But I don't think people actually realize how big soap operas were between like the mid 80s up until like 91. Weirdly, OJ is what killed the soap opera, ironically, because they were preempting all of the uh, That's right. all the shows for to show OJ and everybody got caught up in that drama. And so you just couldn't keep up with your every days. But like to read about that bars and restaurants on Sundays were hosting viewing parties where they would get recordings of like all of the episodes from the week. And then like all these blue collar workers would come in and like watch these things in like the middle of upstate New York or whatever. It's wild. Well, keep in mind, you know, you got to put these, you know, you hit on something important. You have to put it into a context. In the early 80s in the United States, you had three networks. There was really no cable yet. It was in infancy. And um, there was obviously no internet. There was no streaming. So if you had a show that was popular, 
you only had three options if you wanted to watch television. And in those days, maybe the U.S. had, what, 250, 275 million people? I think they say that the Luke and Laura episode where they got married, which is the highest episode rated episode in soap opera history, they got 30 million people watching that particular day for that. That's wild. But on average, I think General Hospital was pulling during its that whole run. That, that run lasted a long time, a few years. I think they were pulling something like 22 million people a day. So that was about one in 12 people in America wow. were watching that show. You know, just think about going anywhere. I was a small bit player on the show, but I was on, you know, several days a week. Uh, everywhere you went, someone knew who you were. It was really interesting because it became such a phenomenon that it wasn't just, you know, bored housewives. It was all walks of life. I remember the Kansas City baseball team came because when they would go on road trips, they'd watch the show on the bus. Everybody had something to say about it, and it was everywhere at that time. That's wild. I know I was reading an article talking about how they knew things had really changed with their audience when they went from advertising, quote unquote, women's products like cooking sprays and household cleaners and things like that to like the Rolling Stones advertised their one of their first live concert films during right. an episode of General Hospital. So you're seeing this like uh, the advertising and who they understand is watching and like the buying audience is completely changing. Now it's not just bored housewives. Well, and also keep in mind, I started in 1978. It was just starting to bubble at that point. Now, soap operas were not high-end productions, so to speak. You had a lot of actors on there and the sets were a little, and you know, you didn't make a lot of money relative to say doing prime time. But by 1979, uh, Gloria Monty was a real superstar and she whipped that whole show into shape. She was a superstar woman and she had a plan and boy, to watch that whole transformation so quickly. And then here came the money. Once Fred Silverman, who was the president of ABC at that time, uh, once he saw how much money that show was making, he got right behind it. And uh, it was fascinating to see the demographic shift. Uh, again, I was a kid, but you could it was palpable. You could feel the electricity that was going on. And a lot of people started to really care what they were putting out. You know, a lot, a lot of these actors, we just, you know, the scripts weren't that great. You just walk through it. Bang, 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 bang. Can I go home? But people started to realize that, wow, this could be something great. And, and there was just, like I said, there was a general sense of enjoyment, which bred a great sense of community through the actors. Uh, every actor on there had the same experience I did, which is it didn't matter how big your part was. Everywhere you went, you were, people were interested in this. And it was really fun to be around. And also, can I say the late seventies, early eighties was kind of a drab time in America. You know, Carter was the president and people were not feeling, you know, I like Carter, but people were post Vietnam. You got to remember the, so this was something that people was light and easy fun that people could hook onto and they went with it. 
And it seems like Gloria Monti also brought in the concept of the fantastical. So before then, like, you would have mostly, like, kitchen sink sort of drama stuff. Like, everything was kind of rooted in the everyday. But then when Gloria Monti comes in, not only do you start getting stars, like Elizabeth Taylor starts guest starring, um, she is playing a uh, a widow who curses Luke and Laura because they, she believes they ruined her life. And so, like, you have this element. And then as you get further and further into late 80s and early 90s, that's when, like, the supernatural starts coming in. So what we're seeing sort of um, parodied in these two films is now this, they've, they've really latched on to like, this is how off the rails it goes. But it also seems like the plot lines they're proposing actually aren't off the rails. Like these are actually pretty standard uh, soap opera plot lines for the period of time of 1991. Well, if you keep in mind, you know, back to the early days of what they would call the traditional soap opera, you can go back to the 1960s with things like Dark Shadows, mm-hmm. which was a soap opera about vampires. You yeah. know, Gloria was a real force of nature. She knew what she wanted to do. Everything was pretty deliberate with her, but she had a charisma and an energy about her that couldn't be denied. And she had (laughs) such a strong sense of conviction about the way the show was going to go. And she said to Fred, I think she came from the New York theater originally. She's an Italian girl. I think her last name was Montemoro or something like that. Anyway, um, she wanted to make it an escape. You know, who else is going to think about raping a woman and then marrying her? I mean, a lot of this was very off. Nobody really knew what she was doing, but Gloria knew what she was doing. And she knew how to, she had the Midas touch, man. She she knew exactly what she was doing. I mean, she got a lot of backlash at the time and even later, like actually General Hospital itself. So we're talking, of course, about the relationship with Luke and Laura where he sexually assaulted her. And it's uh, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty brutal scene. She changed it where it was supposed to be a vicious attack into right. what looks more like it's very subtle. It's a seduction. Wildly, the song, the Herb Alpert song that is playing uh, right. during it hit the Billboard Top 100 and oh stayed gosh. there for weeks. Like it is wild. Um, and then later in like 98 in the early 2000s, uh, Lucky is the result of Luke and Laura, who is also played by a Hollywood heart, heart throb, uh, now a child actor. Um, and he uh, he sort of evaluates where he came from. And they really reevaluate that storyline being like, eh. But it's just such a wild place to spawn what is considered one of the greatest love stories in, of, uh, of soap opera history. That it was just such an anchor point for people. Well, you know, Gloria did go into that with any naivete you know she knew that she was really pushing the boundaries she knew there would be significant backlash but what's that old hollywood saying there's no such thing as bad publicity and no matter how much she got beat up it was better for the show people who hated it like i want to see what the hell they're doing over there i don't like this and they well and then they get hooked. <laughs> well, and also, like, you're, I know you talk about actors kind of, uh, in, in the early days, kind of being like, eh, whatever. And you watch those scenes, and you're like, these are not actors phoning it in. These are actors that, like, there's a very specific style that goes along with soap opera. There's a heightenedness to it, which we're going to see parodied in both our films today. But they're not bad. Like, they're doing exactly what they are supposed to be doing that serves the the, the format. Right. And, you know, that's the other thing. There are a lot of lifers in the soap world, you know, actors on those things for 30, 40 years. And it's always the same sort of thing. Go downstairs. My God, so-and-so died. I got to go to the thing. That can really become, I mean, listen, I was on for just under four years. 
And I'm like, do I have to walk up and down these stairs and say this? You know? But you're right that when all of a sudden you're feeling like you're not only being appreciated, but you're in the you're you're I think at some point. The ABC daytime lineup brought in half the money for ABC and all of it was General Hospital. And that was unheard of. So you really felt like you needed to bring your A game. I mean, the, listen, the writing wasn't great. But the writing got better, the directing got better, the acting got better. Now, certainly these things don't always last. And some of the actors were terrible, but they were, you know, good looking. But even the terrible ones could finally spit out their line without, you know, looking like a piece of cutboard. But yes, yes and yes, it, it really added something to the whole thing. And of course, you know, having a lot of people like an Elizabeth Taylor, you know, a lot of people don't know this great Hollywood gem. But when Dustin Hoffman decided to do Tootsie, he spent three months on our set. Mm -hmm. Really? Just walking around, wanting to, he's sitting in our green room, wanting to see what the actors were doing. Because he was a real method actor. And of course, Tootsie, he played, you know. And uh, wow, see someone like a Dustin Hoffman just sitting around wanting to learn from us? It was, I mean... There were a lot of little tidbits. And of course, Elizabeth Taylor, she walked in there like a little kid in a candy store. And of course, all these actors are in awe of her. Well, she's in awe of them. I couldn't believe it. That is a perfect place to transition into our first film because Dustin Hoffman is actually going to play a role in uh, the discussion of what was going on around MGM while our movie was being made. So MGM has always touted itself as the home of the stars, but perhaps the name home of the scandal would be more accurate. With all the indiscretions or horrible murders committed by slash covered up by Eddie Mannix in the 30s and 40s, it's ironic it was well known for producing family-friendly entertainment like Singing in the Rain and Wizard of Oz. Now, 1991's Delirious and the behind-the-scenes drama happening at the time is possibly a perfect microcosm for MGM, starring John Candy, Mario Hemingway, Raymond Burr in his final role, and, in a shocking twist, Robert Wagner, it's a perfectly charming and goofy little comedy, which was made under one of the wildest studio heads MGM has ever seen, and that is saying something. <laughs> Okay, let's get into this. So, Emily, uh, just give people a brief uh, plot summary about what Delirious is about. It stars John Candy, Canadian icon John Candy, R.I.P., and he plays uh, the head writer and a producer on a soap opera. And basically, he's trying to pitch some new storylines trying to control the narrative a little bit, and they're not liking that. And one day he hits his head on the trunk of a car and he wakes up in the soap opera. He is actually inside of it. And not only is he inside of it, he actually can write the next scene in it. He is still a writer in it and he controls the narrative totally. Um, so chaos ensues, of course, because, you know, with great power become, comes great responsibility and he starts uh, making changes to suit himself so that he can get the girl and things can go his way. Um, 
But, you know, living in a soap opera is different than writing or acting in a soap opera. That is a great way of putting this. Now, here's my first question for you guys. Is It seems like in all of these movies where uh, a guy hits his head or ends up in a time loop like Groundhog Day or something, one of the first things they want to do is learn how to play the piano like a virtuoso. They always <laughs> assign themselves this role. Why is that? Is that just because, like, it takes a lot of time and attention to play the piano? And so it's like, yeah, if I could do that instantly, that's the first thing. I would want to do. Why not? Mm. You know, like, wh- why not? It, it's something easy and uh, and fun. And also you can show it off to people. I think that's part of it. You know, 88 keys, right? There's 88 yeah. keys in a piano. If you pick up a guitar, there's six. A bass has four strings. I think that there's something, I think that may be the reason why. It looks pretty imposing and a little intimidating when you see a big piano. So if you can master that or at least play it, you got something going maybe. <laughs> I think that's possibly the best way to put it. I think it's also like, it's just a good visual. Like it's one of my favorite things. John Candy obviously is an excellent physical performer and watching him just bang on that piano is really good for a visual sight gag. It's playing with a lot of the very heightened soap opera a- aspects. It is very much a parody of, of this. But in that, this is also a movie that does not feel like it comes out of 1991. This is a movie that feels like it's like spoofy mid like early 80s what do you guys think yeah i i thought this movie actually came out before it did like it feels more akin to some of the 80s performances even that john candy does because this is like after uncle buck this is after space Vaults, this is after the great outdoors you know and it feels like it, it's just so, so zany in a way that I don't think of those early 90s comedies being. It's like excessive in a way that like, I feel similarly about Soap Dish actually, but I think Soap Dish is doing it more with like a purpose. Whereas this just feels like it's, this is just what the movie meant to be. You know, I also wonder if one of those things, if you look at sort of the, if you watch any movie and no one tells you what date it is, you can often tell when the movie is made mm-hmm. just by the way it's shot, the way it's edited. I'm wondering if maybe with that, you know, the 80s kind of were the height for a lot of soap operas, obviously General Hospital, but others had big, big. I'm wondering if it was sort of a maybe um, a throwback just to a time right before. I mean, if you wanted to capture the soap opera genre, it was it was the 80s and 90s, but a lot of people really identify it with the 80s. I, I think you're you're right. I mean, there it is. Both of these films don't feel timely in terms of 1991 because like we are, it does feel like kind of the end of the road. It feels like these should have come out possibly in like 88 or 89, which was the previous year we just discussed. Like the the timeliness feels a little bit off for them, which is interesting. Normally, and no, Hollywood's often behind the, the zeitgeist. Like, disco was basically over by the time all the disco movies came out. <laughs> so it's, it, yeah, it's just such a weird thing how, I mean, it takes so long to make a movie, right? That by yeah. the time that you're there, it's just completely disappeared. One of the things that's interesting, too, is that, like, just the people who are associated with this movie and and who, create, who uh, directed and wrote it also are people that were associated with stuff that was very not really of the time. So Lawrence J. Cohn and Fred Freeman wrote it, and they were mostly known for TV and specifically ensemble TV shows. But their biggest feature was something called The Big Bus, 
Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. I just, I never heard of it either, Becky, and I watched the trailer. And basically, it is a a spoof of disaster movies. Like the big bus, it's like the airplane, but it's like a giant bus that all these people are on. And they say that by the end of the movie, everyone's going to die. And there's like cannibalism. It's just like literally kitchen sink the movie. I'm intrigued by it, but the fact that I've never heard of it before and I love disaster movies and I love parody movies means it's probably not very good. But Stockard Channing's in it, I think. Stockard Channing drives the bus. She is the Sandra Bull- uh, the Sandra Bullock. It seems like it's speed, bef- like two decades before speed. So this is 1973. And wow. so it's like one of the first parodies. It beats Airplane. It's one of the first parodies of the disaster genre. And so when you watch it, it's that same like total over-the-top a minute um, spoofy thing that they're doing here. So this is what these guys do. And that makes sense for like a spoof from like, yeah, 70s and 80s. But like the 90s, we're just not quite in that same joke a minute sort of territory. That's sort of interesting, you know. And also keep in mind one thing that you mentioned, Raymond Burr. Mm-hmm. We got two seconds to talk about this guy. If, mm-hmm. you're, if you're not an older person, you're probably not going to know who he is. But he was a very serious... He played Ironside. He, you know, He's he Perry played, Mason. <laughs> and Perry Mason, right? So when I was a kid, he was on Ironside, where he played like this guy who was in a wheelchair and he was fighting crime and everything. But he was a very sober, very, you know, he had a very uh, air of seriousness about him. And in a movie with John Candy? I'm wondering, I believe maybe Raymond Burr was Canadian as well. He I'm was. Wondering... He was born in New Westminster. In, uh, so, okay, in I'm thinking that, you know, Raymond and John, had a couple of uh, beers and, you know, they said, look, Raymond, you know, we, we already, you already got it going as, uh, as Raymond, as uh, Perry Mason, you already got that. You got the iron side, but nobody's seen you do this. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's possible. I mean, he's also playing basically Jr. from Dallas, right? Like that's right. the character he's doing. And this one for me also doesn't feel daytime soap even though he's a daytime soap writer this to me feels like dallas dynasty like this this is what they're parroting here is the late night stuff as opposed to the the daytime stuff and well i have a feeling look first of all you know you're talking about the death of the soap opera i have a different take on it just Mm. that for example dynasty knots landing all those are soap operas Mm -hmm. uh guess what star wars has turned out to be 100 and a Western, by the way. But mm-hmm. a lot of the, what do you think Breaking Bad? What do you think Game of Thrones? What do you think? I mean, any one of these, and it's not just uh, American shows. You know, you can watch Peaky Blind. I mean, all these are soap operas. Yeah. They may not go by that anymore, but that's what all of these are. Once Luke said, or Darth Vader said, Luke, you're my kid. Oh, it's a soap opera. Where'd you pull that, Where'd you pull that out of? It's a soap yeah. opera now. It's true. I think Grey's Anatomy is like a perfect example of the soap opera. And that's like the longest running show currently on, right? Like, and that lives on the serialness of it and is outrageous in the same way that a lot of these soaps ended up being because they had to keep the story going because they were, it's not every day, but it's every week. And it's been on for what, like 20 years. I don't know. Like it's insane, right? Yeah. And, and I, that genre goes through a lot of transformations, but it, of course it never really goes away. People fall in love with characters doesn't matter the genre and they always want more i mean that's the magic of television as opposed to you know back in the old days they didn't do sequels with movies 
you had your two hours and you were done. Uh, but people want to see those characters live on. They want to see what happens. And of course, the soap opera, like you said, every day. But even these, look at any of those um, CSI or NCIS that are on for 20 years, uh, crime, law and order. They're all a version of a soap opera. 100%. And it's also interesting to me because you we, currently you're seeing film writers parody what they see and think a soap opera is. Mm -hmm. And so as they're throwing like these absurd twists and like there's there's almost a a mocking tone to them, but I'm like there is a skill to a long running long running soap opera. Like film writers obviously especially at this time would be looking down at the television genre. Like television just the separation of church and state. We're going to be talking about Aaron Spelling in the second half and his jump into feature films, but like really you didn't make the jump from one to the other. You lived in TV or you lived in film. And this because again it has this like I am like 90% sure this was a film that was on the shelf for a while and they pulled it out because John Candy was now a megastar or something similar. They you you really get this sense of people who don't necessarily understand what a soap opera is. They're just kind of like throwing things to the wall, being like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're just overdramatic and it's bad acting and it's this. And and we can recognize it a trope, but it just doesn't ring true as an actual parody. Like good satire, good parody basically does the thing and does the thing extremely seriously and then makes you laugh at it. And that's not quite what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. I also feel like John Candy is playing it like a little maybe too naturally in some scenes here. Like he's just too sweet and endearing that it just doesn't work in the same way. Well, he's, not a, he's not a jerk that you think would take take advantage of people. That's the no. thing. He's, he's, see, that's the whole point of the movie is that he is someone who is taking advantage of people and then realizes, oh, I'm not the puppet of other people's lives. And then it has to flip around, right? And yeah. you don't ever think he's a bad guy. Yeah, I think that that is what it just never sold for me as I was just like, I don't, I don't believe that he would want to do this. Like, like I, I know he's played other parts where he's a little bit darker, but it just, he's such a teddy bear. Like, and that's what we love about him. And so I think, I think he was like somewhat miscast, but I understand why they would cast him because he was a huge star. And like we were talking about, you know, he was in like several other movies this year, like four, four or five movies this year alone. Um, yeah, JFK, and, only the uh, only the lonely career opportunities, which I've never even heard of and nothing but trouble, which is extremely notorious. Yeah. And then he would do a couple more and then he was gone, you know. Um, and so this feels a bit like the downturn of, of John Candy's like career a little bit like Cool Runnings comes not long after this, which, um, is, uh, so well, and them not knowing what to do with him as a leading man, because he has so much appeal, but he can't really carry a movie by himself. Like everything he does, he's buddied up with, right? Like planes, trains, and automobiles, uncle Buck. He's a, I mean, it's him and the family, you know, like he's never, even though he's the center of the story, he's never actually carrying the story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so interesting you say that because yeah, I think his strongest performance is planes, trains, and automobiles. And it's, it works because he plays perfectly off Steve Martin, who's like this uptight guy. And he gets to be this sweet kind of like weirdo, which I think works so well for him. And I don't mind Only the Lonely, which is that other movie that you mentioned from this year. I think he's kind of sweet in that, but that's a romance. And I, I often wonder what his career would have looked like if he, if he survived, like where would he have gone after this? Because I, I, I don't really know. Like 
Did he need to maybe pivot into something a little more serious? Like, are we unable to see him in a comedy where he's playing more of the straight man? Interesting also would be to know whether or not, you know, a lot of these actors, I, I don't know. I never met John Candy. Um, but a lot of these actors, especially someone who had cut his teeth uh, early on doing comedy and then, of course, transformed from being one of those people that went from television into film and had a great success. You know, you can get a little tired of pull my finger. You want something a little different. You know, you look at someone like a choice that, uh, oh God, it went out. What's his name? Bill Murray made from uh, when he he did a Somerset mom movie called Razor's Edge, which was very serious searching. You know, obviously he went to like Lost in Translation later in his career with great success. But a lot of these guys want to, you know, if you're if you're setting out to be a a, a major person in Hollywood, once you've played that role so many times or versions of that role, sometimes you have a deal, you know, to answer your question, Becky, he may have had a deal with the studios where he said, all right, I'll do all these ones for you, but I want one where I get to do something a little, see what happens. And maybe a lot of times when you're not sure if you can do something outside of that, you don't want to carry the picture. You want to have a couple of seasoned people around you to be with you. So that if, uh, you know, if they don't necessarily accept you as that part, you can get a lot of boost because they love the actors around you. I mean, after all, they just want to make their money. True. But I also think you're onto something with the fact that, like, this is Raymond Burr's final role. Right. Like, he'd been around for decades. And I can see someone like John Candy, who loved movies, and he loved acting, and he loved all this, being like, you know what? Yes, of course I want to be in a movie with Raymond Burr, you know? <laughs> like, why, Absolutely. why wouldn't you? Absolutely. And vice versa. I mean, you wouldn't have seen Raymond Burr gravitate to, I mean, to, in a John Candy movie. That's just, that doesn't make much sense. And yet, there you go. There it is. Well, I want to get into a little bit about this movie getting made and what was happening at MGM at the time and just kind of how bonkers this story is. Now, I went looking to be like, someone must have made like a, a podcast about this or like a, even a YouTube video kind of explaining the uh, Credit Leonese scandal and um, uh, the... Uh, what happened with Giancarlo Peretti and MGM, there is nothing about this. And I was trying to explain it to my husband and he is like, this is a movie. Why is this not a movie? And I'm like, I think because a lot of people that were caught up on this are still around and there's still people who are greenlighting movies and that's why you haven't seen anything about this. Because mm. Hollywood loves a movie about itself, right? So I'm like, why haven't we talked about this? And uh, yeah, it just, there doesn't seem to be any, like the only articles I could find were things that were basically written in 96, like mostly contemporary stuff that where they'd finally unraveled everything. It I, I didn't know that much about it, to be honest, Becky, like until you pointed it out to me. And I was like, I was like, oh, my God, this is so this is so juicy. This is I know. So <laughs> it's just, the Vatican is involved. Like it's just layers upon layers. Now, are you familiar with this, Philip? Do you know what happened? You were around at the you were in Hollywood. Yeah, I remember that story. But I think you also hit the nail on the head. Which is, look, Hollywood loves a great story about itself, but Hollywood doesn't like to have to eat its own unless they know it's a guaranteed winner. Mm -hmm. And this is a dirty, dirty story, a lot of uh, back dealing. And I think a lot of those people are still around uh, or the people that they hired to take over the heads, you know, have they don't want to have to tell on their mentors Maybe one day that story, but I think that that would be something of a documentary, an independent filmmaker. But yeah, I'm surprised someone hasn't gone after that story. So Giancarlo Peretti, he started out as a Sicilian waiter. 
Then, from what I can tell, now stop me if I'm wrong here, Emily, because I know you've gone down here, and it's very complicated. Then, from what I can understand, he shows up working at a hotel where he meets a corrupt Italian senator named Graziano Verzato, who owned the hotel and a football team. And and he ends up becoming his aide-de-camp in some way and managing this hotel, which means, okay, obviously, you're facilitating certain uh, processes for this guy. When he gets taken down in a scandal for a state-owned mineral company, he has to flee to Lebanon, and he leaves Giancarlo Peretti in charge of the hotel and the football team, which he then proceeds to, like, loot for everything it's owned. Then he goes to prison for a little bit for what happens here. And then he shows up in Hong Kong in a fish processing factory. And then somehow from there, he ends up in France, which is how he gets connected to the Credit Lyonnaise Bank. (laughs) So this is just the beginning of the story. Yeah. Then he, I know, then he ends up in L.A. And suddenly he has all of this money And he starts trying to buy studios. And like, so he tries to buy Canon Films because Canon Films was a billion dollars in debt. He tries to buy Carolco. He's trying to buy Pathé. Like he's trying to get himself involved in all these things. But everything just keeps kind of falling through. But he's whining and dining everybody. And nobody likes him. Everybody thinks, they refer to him as the Italian Ralph Cramden like they're like, yeah, he's he's like big and gross. They say he his, his tie especially was of note. People hate his ties. Um, so this is kind of where he is. Finally, he gets involved with Dino De Laurentiis and gets invited to purchase MGM with this money he supposedly has. What it turns out to be is that Credit Lyonnais, which was a state-run French bank, was basically operating as a Ponzi scheme, and they were going to use all of the, what do you call them, like real estate holdings of all the theaters that MGM owned and that uh, Canon owned and things like that as money laundering facilities, because I guess it's easy to launder money through film. But Peretti blew it because he actually got fascinated with the idea of actually making movies. So when he took over MGM, he started actually producing films, which is not what they wanted him to do. And so he starts blowing through money, making some movies, but also he installs his entire family in positions of financial power throughout MGM. Uh, Then things really start to go wrong because, and this is where Dustin Hoffman comes in, a check to Dustin Hoffman bounces. And then uh, Sean Connery refuses to attend premieres until he's paid. So like all the players start to go, okay, there's something seriously wrong here. Uh, He's hosting all these benefits and banquets where no directors, nobody is showing up at these things who would be photographable, just people who could be seen as like hangers-on. This brings attention to MGM significantly. This then brings attention to Credit Lyonnaise, which was like dealing with all of these shell companies, including shell companies that were owned by the Vatican. And everything eventually sort of fell apart there. And he had to be um he had to be sent back to Italy for prosecution. He was he was prosecuted here. But this is what was happening while this movie was being made. Like, this is all between 89 and 92. And you're just like, and I'm leaving out a bunch of stuff. Like, this gets, there's a bunch of players. This is like, this is a mini series. It's, it's wild. But you're just like, this Italian waiter then goes and steals $2 billion from a French bank and buys MGM. Like, I'm sorry, what? Rags to riches? Like, this is, and jo, jo, uh, what did Jordan Balfort won a, a movie, won a bunch of Oscars. Can you imagine what this would do? I know. It should be a soap opera. That's what it should be. It should be a soap opera series. 
about this guy because like I even read that he was like not even just the money stuff he was like trying to get Meryl Streep to go to bed with him he was like trying to get Ronald Reagan to like take over MGM which obviously we know Ronald Reagan was at that time not necessarily interested in uh owning MGM so like it's just it's just insane you could do so much with this story um, and I'd probably rather watch it than rewatch Delirious, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also love he owned a discotheque named Tramps, which I think is the greatest name for a disco. Oh, my God. See, that could be the name of the series, Tramps. <laughs> I feel like there's something here, Becky. Well, you know, it's funny to hear that here's this guy who was a waiter in Italy and all of a sudden he's going to own a studio. But, you know, keep in mind that there was a period of time in that preceded this a little bit where most of the studios, MGM included, were run by creatives. They were not, you know, MGM wound up getting that studio, get wound up getting um, bought by Sony at some point, that actual physical lot. And, um, you know, Sony was a Japanese electronics company. They were not in the entertainment business. They were in the electronics business. And so there were people, I mean, another one that comes to mind when I think about, you know, like here's this Italian waiter running MGM, you know, uh, it was, was it Barbara Streisand's hairdresser, a guy named John Peters. We love stories about John Peters and his (laughs) love of giant spiders. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, but he was a hairdresser. How do you go from hairdresser to studio Mm -hmm. executive? That's not a normal career path, by the way. Uh, I know it sounds crazy to anyone else. But that's kind of how Hollywood can work. And by the way, can work successfully at times. Maybe we're talking about these cases that it did. I mean, actually, John Peters would turn out to be a terrific studio head for a lot of people. But that's the circus of Hollywood in a nutshell. But I mean, that's also why they call it the dream factory, right? Is anyone can, you can make it, forget New York, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. It's like anyone can make it in LA. Like that's the, rather than like the Ratatouille thing, right? Like not anyone can be a chef, but a chef can come from anywhere. That's kind of the LA story. Absolutely it is. And that's the mystique of Los Angeles that still exists even to this day, even when the business of show has largely moved on from Hollywood in many respects. But, um, you know, if you go anytime to Hollywood and Vine or anywhere in Hollywood, uh, which is a dirty, filthy, awful place in a lot of ways, <laughs> it still is filled with that wonder and starshine that people gravitate to because it is, it is a dream factory. And I, you know, I knew so many people, you know, that we'll talk about this with Soap Dish, but, you know, Paul Johansson, a fellow Canadian of yours, as a guy I knew when he was on the Canadian Olympic basketball team and wanted to come down to throw his hat in the ring in Hollywood. And, um, you know, this, listen, the Hollywood dream story is rife with people who escaped wherever they wanted to go and threw and, and gave it a shot. And that's an, that's an alluring human story. We all dream. And, you know, the business of make-believe is just as important to the people on the executive side as the business of, as the acting, you know, the craft of make-believe is for actors. Well, you think about someone like Bob Evans and the kid stays in the picture. And I mean, that's everything, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's the interesting thing about Hollywood, even now, is that 
you know, obviously being an actor, I've, I've had, I've had managers and I've had agents and I've worked for the studios. I've done films and I've done tele, I've done it all. So I've, I've had a chance and doesn't matter if you're the caterer or the locations manager or the director, or the guy who's writing the copy for your you know radio spot, they are all in show business to, and, and to the degree that that's where they are. And, and, and they wanted to be in it. Maybe they didn't want to be in front of the camera, but they're in show business. That is, I think, the perfect place to go into our next film, because in our next film, everybody wants to be in show business and is going to get there however they can. It's Soap Dish, and that's coming up after the break. You're not going to want to miss it. Hey, Cam. Uh, caveat before we start. Uh, I appear in some Hollywood Suite original content, and you are one of the writers and producers of a lot of that content, and you appear in them as well. Uh, shows like A to Z and the Year in Film TV series, but I'm really proud of being a part of them because I feel that, like this podcast, uh, knowing more about the context of the movies we love really enriches the enjoyment of those movies. I think it's also a, a great reminder that like film is such an unusual medium where so many artists are involved. I think you're somebody who loves to dig into producers uh, and like how they affect things you know a producer was obsessed with an actor and that's why they're in X or Y how one director made a pillow fort to get away from his producer when he was throwing tantrums sure Uh, John Peters really wanted to see a giant mechanical spider on screen these are all like important points (laughs) of film history that that get lost because frankly they're not the front facing people exactly and I think all of the Hollywood Suite original content brings these stories that a lot of people haven't heard before to the forefront. And not only are they going to learn about the movies they already love, they'll probably find a bunch of new favorites. And they'll be guided by reliable film experts and thorough, well-curated interviews and behind-the-scenes footage. And you can find out more about Hollywood Suite original programming at hollywoodsuite.ca. And now, back to the show. The amount of Easter eggs for soap opera lovers in 1991's Soap Dish is absurd. But what do you expect for a movie executive produced by Aaron Spelling himself? It's a movie made for and by soap fans in the know. But with a star-studded cast, many of whom had been kicking around Hollywood for decades, there was bound to be at least a little drama surrounding the production of 1991's Soap Dish— now, Philip, I know you've got some really juicy tidbits here and some personal connections to Soap Dish. But before we go any further, let's just give people a very brief plot summary of this film. Yeah, Sally Field plays kind of this aging soap opera star. She's a very kind of particular neurotic character. And I have to say, I don't know her, but I've seen her in, you know, in interviews. There's a lot of Sally. If you really want to see Sally Field as Sally Field, you got to see this movie. There's a lot of Sally Field in Soap Dish. Anyway, it's about all the trials and tribulations of what happens on a soap opera. And like a soap opera, a lot of that stuff is true. It doesn't just stay on the screen. A lot of it bleeds into the personal lives. of the. There's a certain type of person who's a soap opera actor. That's all I'm saying before I get myself in trouble. But go see Soap Dish. You'll learn a lot. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, so let's get into the juicy stuff and your personal connection to the film. Okay, so I was still doing on-camera acting at that time. And right before then, in the late 80s, I moved to Canada. And I got involved with these, you know, obviously actors and that community. And I met a lot of guys who would become um, famous here in, in Canada. I originally went up there to do an episode of 21 Jump Street. And so I met Johnny Depp 
And Johnny, that show was a real vehicle for young Hollywood people to get, you know, to get a nice juicy part because it was a drama show. It had a heartthrob. So everybody would watch. And um, they tackled a lot of really heavy subject matters. And like I actually the episode I did was about a young teenage kid dying of AIDS. Now, this is when Fox was really just cutting their teeth and trying to make themselves as a network. And kind of what we were talking about earlier, they didn't care about diving into subjects that were considered taboo. Then they would get some backlash because they wanted to make a name for themselves. This is what, sorry, just time-wise, just 89 and 90 kind of in that area? Yeah, well, I went up there to do this in 87. But in 88, I met Jason Priestley, another Canadian actor. And he had some friends. And one of the guys I met was uh, Paul Johansson. And he had just been, I think, in the 88 Olympics for the Canadian basketball team. Good-looking kid. We used to call him uh, Paul So Handsome. <laughs> and eventually, you know, I was from L.A., living in Canada. So I'd say, come down to L.A. I got a place or whatever. They got, you know, and we would kick around. And eventually, Paul got this part in Soap Dish. And uh, he just was, you know, playing a piece of meat. But it was pretty funny because I said, oh, you know, I read the script and I said, this is this is an Aaron Spelling, you know, and that kind of took me back to the thing. And I said, you're perfect. Just don't act. Just lift an (laughs) eyebrow and, you know, do the muscle thing. You'll be fine. And he actually became friends uh, with Robert Downey Jr. through this. And uh, and Terry Hatcher. Uh, So those three were kind of kicking around. And I spent basically. The summer of 1991, the four of us, and we would just kick, you know, they were down in Los Angeles. And um, it was an interesting time to be Paul Johansson. It was an interesting time to be Terry Hatcher. And it sure as hell was an interesting time to be Robert Downey Jr. (laughs) Definitely. Um, So, but it was interesting because from the juxtaposition from the general hospital life that I'd had, which was the authentic soap experience to their parody soap experience. It was interesting to see how many parallels there were to that for them as actors. You know, they really relished getting to sort of chew the scenery because obviously as actors on a real soap opera, you're not allowed to, you know, they don't, they don't want you to parody the stuff that they're trying to get you to really buy this baloney. But obviously, and from what I remember hearing from them, Sally Field was all game to do this. You know, like we were talking about with John Candy, she'd already done her Norma Ray and gotten her Oscars and everything. She just wanted to have some fun. And I and I and there was a lot of Sally Field in that movie. I think that was a very cathartic movie for all of those people to do. Because you know, you talk about someone like an Aaron Spelling. He has a reputation of being a real hit maker. He also likes to have a little tongue in cheek in his movies. And he knows how to put the greatest producers are the ones who know how to put the people who will get that out of people. And that movie really worked because, you know, Aaron Spelling is often thought of as a lightweight, but he was not. No. Are you kidding he, me? Well, look, a lot of the movies and I mean, a lot of the TV shows he did, they're easy targets to go, you know, but, but, the, ge- um, but the genius behind knowing what the populace is going to want for that long is like, 
Wow. Like well, it's he so, had like, the pulse on it, not only from a creative standpoint, but from an aesthetic and environment standpoint. He knew how to put the pieces together in all ways. And he would hire the right people for the right projects. And he just knew he was a, such an amazing hit maker. What you hear too, which is interesting, there was an interesting uh, Hollywood Reporter article that talked about, you know, like it kind of went through all his greatest hits for like having, it starts out with like all the Charlie's Angels kind of talking right. about him and then goes into, you know, uh, then you have Dynasty and then you have Me- Beverly uh, 90210 and then Melrose. So like it kind of like little, they kind of chunk everything by like his biggest hits. Um, but not a person has a bad things to say about him. Everybody is like singing his praises or like stuff was weird. He was demanding, et cetera, but he was never a bad guy. He just knew exactly what he wanted and how to get it. And I think that also sounds extremely rare for someone who had a career starting from the 70s, you know? Well, you know, that's the thing. A producer, a good producer, is just basically the guy who puts the jigsaw puzzle pieces together. And he'd been around long enough. Another one that comes to mind, this is really terrific at doing this. If you ever watch a Clint Eastwood movie that he's directed. Um, he's, he's had people with him for 30, 40 years. They work on all his movies. And if they don't, if they're not the right one, they say, I got a guy who's better for this than me. And that takes so much of, from the creative process, so much of the onus off people to have to worry about the infrastructure of the picture and you can worry on more on the creative. How many movies fall apart because you're so worried having to fix the infrastructure of the film as opposed to working on the creative? And so Aaron Spelling, he wasn't always the easiest guy to work for. If anybody says anything bad about him, is he, was, he could be a taskmaster because he knew what he wanted. He didn't want your input. He wanted you to go do this. But at the end of the day, almost always he was right. And you got to create. That's what this whole thing is for. Make some money and be able to be creative. That was his genius. And I think like we're reaching him as in 1991 at a very interesting time in his career because he basically was the the biggest hit maker. I think he was like a third of ABC's money at the time of what he was doing between like The Love Boat and Charlie's Angels and everything else. And then ABC was like, well, we feel like you have uh, grown out of the zeitgeist and we don't want to do any of your shows anymore. All of his pilots were getting rejected. And so he just kind of was like, all right, well, what do I do now? And that's when he decided to do Soap Dish, was he was like, well, maybe I'll do some feature films. So what do I know about? I know about daytime television and nighttime television, and I'm going to I'm gonna do this. And that's when he, um, so this comes out, but then he gets a phone call from Fox being like, so we want a really trashy show with teenagers. What you got? At this point, he's 70 years old. And he's like, oh, I have this great idea. It's called Beverly Hills 90210. Let's do this. And it completely relaunches his career in his 70s, which is just wild. Yeah. yeah, that is pretty wild. I, I think when you're looking at a movie or a show like this, um, this one does feel more like an authentic love letter. Yes, they're going over the top and they're but they're also everything is so played so straight and everything is so grounded in reality for this for this movie, especially the performances of um, Kevin Klein and um, even Whoopi Goldberg. Like everybody here is just playing everything so unbelievably straight and everything else around them is big and wacky that I think it worked. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think even having Sally Field as the lead really 
grounded in that, like, we believe her automatically because she's Sally Field, right? And I think that she had this relationship, too, with Robert Harling from from Steel Magnolias, right? And he was like, I, you know, you're Sally Field, you can do anything. Let's, like, make you a bitchy character. Let, let's, let's let you play the bitch for once. You I know? also because love all... how she said, I want to be the bitch, but then she was like, no, 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 but I'm crabby and I have a heart of gold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, of course. <laughs> That's Sally Field for you, yeah. right? Like, of course. Um, she can't help herself. And, and we like her even in this movie when she's being kind of, like, horrible. Like, there's the great scene where she... And Whoopi and Whoopi plays uh, the head writer on the show and they go to the mall and uh, she pretends to recognize Sally Field and and, be, and then everybody comes and swarms around her and you're kind of like, that's kind of like, that's kind of sad. But also you, you kind of feel for her because her role is at stake and she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. You feel for all of these characters. You're, you're following all of their storylines. Even like Kevin Klein, he starts in the movie and I was like, I don't know if I like this guy. Seems like a grump. He's like, he, he like, he's just, he's just rude. And then, then you grow to like him. Um, there's only one character that I have issues with in this film, but we can get to that later. Um, but like, I think Sally Field really gives this the gravitas. And then, you know, Robert Downey Jr. has become Robert Downey Jr. over time. And like, I think if you go back, I bet you that there's like kids that find this movie because they watch Iron Man and they're like looking for Robert Downey Jr. movies to watch. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, this is a movie that I feel like uh, has legs in a way that something like Delirious does not because the cast is so committed and is so good. You know, the other thing that's interesting, you bring up that scene where they go to the mall and she allows herself to get swarmed. You know, think about it. This is the same lady who, when she got up, by the way, her bona fides were already pretty secure at this point, got up on the Oscar stage and said, you like me. You really like me. (laughs) And so that is something that I think every actor encompassed. Listen, I got news for you. There are actors right now who are feeling a little lonely. They're in their big house. Their series is on hiatus. You know, their dog's at the vet, whatever. And they get in their car and they go someplace where they're going to get a little attention. Yeah. And that happens to all actors all the time because it's the human experience. And you can be Sally. I, I don't think that that experience that Sally Field had where she, as her character, went to the mall I mean, it's a great scene. Uh, I also think it's a very real th- and and like I said, even Sally Field, you you like me. I want to be liked. Yeah, it's a very human and 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 I I like that scene a lot. That to me was one of the great scenes in that movie. And I also think that's a lot of Sally. Reason why that movie works. There's a lot of Sally Field in that movie. You know, she she's a nice lady, but she she can have her attitude. She can be crazy. <laughs> she can be neurotic. She got a chance to show that in a fictitious way. That's fun. And she's also no stranger to tabloid fodder. Like we started out this season talking about 1977 and Smokey and the Bandit and her relationship with Burt Reynolds, which like is just, Mm -hmm. you know, tabloids for the God stuff, which when you get into, you know, she's not a stranger to this kind of world and, and, and being in the public eye for this long and having to, you know, try to hide your dirty laundry and realizing you can't. Yeah, you can only do so much grip and grin. And then eventually one day you want to be able to get out there and be the bitch on the screen. I mean, that's cathartic. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Well, and she's playing Susan Lucci too, from what I understand yeah. from the behind the scenes stuff. So, which I'm not a hundred percent up to date on this Susan Lucci stuff, but I understand like her characters and her herself known to be interesting to work with and a woman of great power and and um, uh, a need for attention, one might say. Listen, you do the same page of homework for 50 years, you're going to get a little crappy too. <laughs> That's the crabby is exactly the right word. Well, it's interesting the way you kind of start this with, because um, Sally Field, of course, as Emily mentioned, was the catalyst for it. Um, but the script seems to have gone through a ton of permutations. So it started out as being like an intense one with like uh, mythological roots about family and lies. Like they were going to go like full Agamemnon here. And oh. that's when they were like, okay, I think this is a little too dark for what this movie is going to be. And they started passing this around to people and everyone's like, oh, I don't really want to be a part of this. And then they brought in a bunch of comedians, including Carrie Fisher, who I am pretty sure, which is why she's there, to punch up the script and make it funny. And then that's when everyone was like, okay, this is actually a script I want to do. This actually seems like a lot of fun. Because I can see doing a soap opera show about really like dark, a dark time on a soap opera, but this makes so much more sense to play both angles. Cause there's some, she's dealing with like big, serious things. You know, you're my daughter, you're my, you're my ex lover. You know, this is all happening. Kathy Moriarty is a man. Like there's a bunch of other things going on here. It's, it, it would just be so weird for this to be a serious film. Yeah. I wonder a little bit about, you know, just the nature of you have scripts like this that stick around in Hollywood for a long time and go nowhere. Mm. Everybody reads them and likes them, but they just never get the money behind them. And then maybe it's one of those things that's a kismet thing. If you can get someone like an Aaron Spelling, who's a proven hit, or you start to punch it up and maybe now he gets into, I see where you're going with this. Let's take this to, I got some people that can punch this thing. I wonder how the, I don't know the story behind how that started. But as you know, if you get a couple names attached on either side, uh, man, this Hollywood is rife, as you know, with so many films who sat on the uh, on the shelf for a lot of years. And then somebody of the moment says, I want to do that movie. And then next thing you know, they get the screenwriter of the moment or they just said, listen, we can't make this too heavy for right now. Or we want if Aaron Spelling is here, we're going to do it a little Charlie's Angels style or 90210 style or whatever they're going to try to put behind it. But I, I hadn't heard that story. That's an interesting story that this thing started out as a dark Agamemnon thing. That's interesting. Well, it was supposed to be directed by Herbert Ross as well because of his Steel Magnolias connection. And uh, Sally Field didn't want to work with him again after oh. having done Steel Magnolias. Apparently he was a challenge on that film. Um, but he was really good friends with her husband at the time, producer, super producer, I should say, Alan, uh, Alan Greisman. And uh, he's like, I still want him involved in some way. So he ended up being an executive producer on this, but he didn't direct the film, which I think is the right way to go. Because I love a good Herbert Ross bitch fight. Like, I'm all about the turning point. But <laughs> but I just don't know if, if his work is kind of the right tone for how goofy this movie needs to be. I think you're right. I don't think so. But also, uh, Andrew Bergman is is one of, is credited as the other writer on this, and he did Fletch, right? And then he would, after this, would do um, Honeymoon in Vegas, and uh, It Could Happen to You, too. Um, and so I feel like there, there's a lot of cooks in this kitchen that, like, really brought it to the right simmer. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I feel like it feels like a lot of different voices coming in at once, but that's what a soap opera is. Like you see that scene in the writer's room, right? Where everybody's talking. And like, even though Whoopi 
character like has one opinion, it's everybody has to agree and everybody has to come to a consensus. And I think this is a rare case where for the most part, like that, that melding of different voices of different um, tones, like really works because also the idea here is that the, like, this is a soap opera. It's about a soap opera, but the events of it and the, the actual plot is a soap opera too, right? Like it's like like the twist is, oh, this guy from the past, her past, not only on the show, but uh, in her life comes back. And then we find out that she has a secret daughter. Like it, like it's all, it, 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 the whole thing's a soap opera. And it's like, a, it's a joy to watch that, like juxtaposition between the show and the story that they're telling. I agree. I think it's a, but I think also it is the fact that it's Aaron Spelling and he is bringing his heavy hitters to bring this authenticity to it. So one of the things I want to point us towards is uh, to the Nolan Miller costumes. So if people are not familiar with this name, uh, he basically designed glamour for the 80s and the early 90s. He uh, was uh, the couturier for Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, He created all of the, and Joan Collins, he created all the dynasty looks, the shoulder pads, that's all him. He created basically the silhouette. He also is one of the pioneers of QVC. Uh, He he basically um, uh, teamed up with Joan Rivers for all of her lines, and he had jewelry lines and things like this. So he's doing all the costumes here. All the sets are being designed and built by the Santa Barbara guys, which was also an Aaron Spelling soap opera that didn't end up going anywhere. They did a whole crossover thing where, like, some of the actors from this went on so- Santa Barbara, and some of the Santa Barbara actors are here. So, like, they really are trying to give this air of authenticity and this crossover to this show that I think, again— elevates it past parent parody into a love letter. Yeah, I totally agree. Oh my God, the costumes in this movie, you could just talk about for an entire episode alone. Like the coats that that Sally Field wears, there's even the plot point where she's like, I'm not wearing this turban. You're making me look like the cultural appropriation aside. You're making me look like an old lady. I'm not doing this. Like I- It was inevitable because I'm, I'm a homewrecker. A homewrecker yeah. and I'm old. <laughs> And they put me in a turban. What? They put turban? me in a turban. It's a plot. It is a plot. A plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's just, it's that excessive vibe that feels a bit 80s, which I think is kind of where we're going. Like, what, like how is this 1991? But uh, this feels so representative of, yeah, the dynasty look, of, of the over-the-top feel of the 80s soap operas that... I kind of want to be in that world. Like, I, I was just like, I was like, I love everything that everybody's wearing. I know it's supposed to be over the top, but I'm, I'm, I'm living for it. And I'm living for Sally Fields of getting to wear a furry red coat on the streets. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. And the fact also that Whoopi is in skirts here is, is a big deal. Cause she really didn't like wearing uh, dresses that much. And she was kind of known for her, her style of being wearing pants. She asked to be in, in in dresses. When she found out that Nolan Miller was going to be the designer for this, this was apparently the, they, he was informed from the very top, she does not do dresses, she's only in pantsuits. And for the big gala event scene, he had uh, this beautiful tailored tuxedo for her, and he gets a phone call going, uh, Ms. Goldberg would like to be in a gown. And he was like, okay, well, if she's going to be in a gown, she has to wear a bra. And then her people had to go back <laughs> and explain this to her, and she was like, okay, if I can wear the gown, that's fine, I'll wear the bra. So it's, <laughs> everyone wants to wear Nolan Miller. What can I say? It's all, it's all, it's a very specific idea of glamour that I think if you grew up with, you're like, oh, that, that's glamorous. 
Yeah. I think that the other thing that's kind of interesting, and you bring that up about the costumes, is when that movie came out, you know, the soap operas were still pretty relevant, but a lot of the greatest hits of that modern General Hospital, Young and the Wrestler, all the 80s characters, Susan Lucci, they were sort of starting to be a little bit in the rearview mirror. And so this was like a greatest hits retrospective of what soap opera could be. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I think that if you had been watching General Hospital or All My Children or Young and the Restless, this, you know, back in their heyday, this was five, six, seven, eight years beyond a lot of that or more. And so you could sort of look at it as the greatest hits retrospective of what a soap can be and look through those sort of the reminiscent memorabilia years of, of what, you know, what, what you used to enjoy about the soap opera. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up the the greatest hits aspect. I mean, 91, it, not a great year for uh, LGBTQ characters, especially uh, trans characters. I mean, this is the year of Buffalo Bill and Sansa Lambs. Uh, we are the year away from the crying game. Uh, 94 is, of course, when you get um, Ace Ventura. So representation for trans people is not fantastic, uh, especially for that being punchlines and gay panic. But what is happening here, uh, I actually think they're referencing a couple of other things. Number one, I think they're referencing Tootsie. Um, I think it's difficult, but what I, I think what they're intending to do is to basically say, this is not a transgender person. This is like a Tootsie-esque sort of character of someone who was posing as a woman in order to get, to get further on with a job. Um, and then number two, I think they're referencing the character of Jody from the soap opera parody Soap, uh, which was played by Billy Crystal, who um, was one of the, not the first, but one of the first uh, LGBTQ characters who they initially intended to have this character uh, go through a transition and they were gay and they had a partner. And then because of the pressures from the studio, they ended up having him live with multiple women and he had a child. And like, it's just, even though he was vocally gay, he was never physically intimate with any men. He met, went on one date. So I definitely think that character is referencing those things. I don't think there's, it's unfortunate they make it a punch out line at the end and it becomes extremely transphobic. But I think that's what it's a reference to. It's weird. There's also like a strange sort of transphobic joke in Delirious too. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember that. There's the part with the person that works at the auto shop or whatever. I just think it was a confusing time. And if, yeah, if you didn't realize those connections, like I didn't even think about the Tootsie thing, which is so silly of me, but now that you bring it up, it, it is kind of interesting, but I can, I can see people taking issues with this. And, and even just the fact that they're kind of using Kathy Moriarty's, you know, iconic voice, I feel like to play into that um, part is a little bit problematic. Celeste Talbert is a menopausal hag. Let's see more of Montana Moorhead. What are you looking at? Maria Randozzi, Fort Lee, New Jersey. Fort Lee. That's your audience, okay? That's the heartland. I'm aware of my demographics. If it wasn't for that, I this movie I could watch again. And again. <laughs> That's totally I, fair. I, I really, this movie's great. This movie's great. Like, even if you don't understand all of the soap references, I feel like you can have fun with it. But especially if you understand the soap opera references, it's just, it's a joy. It's a joy to watch. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but that's how I feel. I could watch Kevin Klein do his Kevin Klein thing all day, his pompous asshole thing. We're we're also talking about A Fish Called Wanda this season for 1998. And he's doing the same thing. And it's just his, I just love watching him be a pompous idiot. It's like my favorite thing to watch him do. Well, you can look at this back now, what? It's over 30 years old. And so it lives of its time, good and bad. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like listening to a record from that year or, you know, listening to anything that takes you back. I think it, I think it lives in its time. It's not going to age like a fine wine, but if you want to see what they were doing in 1991 with some of the biggest stars and some of the biggest producers and what, and what they were doing good and bad, this movie is a great time machine for what cinema was right then. It's a little strange uh, because there was a lot of different things. You know, we were talking earlier about how if you were a film actor, you were not a TV actor and vice versa. Obviously, Aaron Spelling was the biggest thing on TV. And he was now doing, I mean, I know he'd done other, but he was doing film producing now. So it's just an interesting, I think it's a real interesting, there was a lot of transformation going on in that time. Get back to what we were talking about full circle with the studios. The studios are going through major changes, some bad. And uh, film was going through major changes. You now had a, I think, what, 91? You had now Bush... The other guy, uh, yeah, yeah Bush, Bush. Ju- Bush Senior was in there. Yeah, you know that was informing a lot of the societal environment, uh, and which always winds up making its way into to film one way or another. So, yeah, I think our our society was going through some big changes. I don't think the eighties had quite left by nineteen ninety one yet, but they were about to. I think that's a, a good place to end. I just want to say uh, one of the things that we we look at here is also the change in the star system and what that says. And we're in a transition point for our star system right now in 2023. They were at one as well, too, because when they were looking for the character of Jeffrey, uh, they were looking, they were like, well, in the 40-year-old age group, you have Michael Douglas, William Hurt, and Harrison Ford. Who else is there? Everyone else has shown that they can't be a leading man. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, isn't that, that was a quote from uh, the producer, uh, one of the producers saying that. There's also a a clip on MTV of, I guess it's a promotion for the film because they're talking about it and they're telling people to go see it, but it's Carrie Fisher and Robert Downey Jr. who look a little out of it. They're coherent enough that they're able to promote the movie, but they're not really making a lot of sense doing it. But again, you have two people from two different generations and star systems kind of hanging out together, which is always really interesting to see. So I think, is yeah, you're right. This is at a very interesting transitional point for everything. So so thank you so much for leaving us with that final thought. And with that, Emily Gagné, I want to thank you so much for joining us once again. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you for letting me soap up with you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Philip Tanzini, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to have you and your insights. Thank you. Thank you, girls. I appreciate it. Now, is there anything you would like to point people towards? Any of your work, a social media account, anything? You know, as I told you, uh, I don't even Zoom. So I'm I'm (laughs) glad I got this far. Uh, You know, I do a lot of voiceover work these days. so if you watch bad television or, uh, you know, you have your streaming on or sometimes I'm probably trying to sell you a box of rice aroni, But other than that, no, I, I, you don't want to find me. If, if you find me, that means you're watching too much bad television. <laughs> Fabulous. And you can join us in two weeks where you should probably get your jammies because we're going to a slumber party. We're looking at my girl and father of the bride. And I'm going to be joined by the absolutely delightful Kimberly Sue Murray. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. 
always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Emily Gagne and Philip Tanzini as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.